Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I am joined by Tyler Yearby. Tyler, how are you doing, man? I am excellent. Excited to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited too. You know, when I first started this podcast or I knew I was going to, there's, there's a few people that you have in mind that you're like, I want this guy on because I know we know each other. For, we've known each other for a while. It's been a minute. And over the years, we've had so many conversations. And this is like part of the impetus of me starting the podcast was like, I have these conversations with people that I feel like are really valuable. And if we just were recording them, I could probably get four podcasts out of our conversation. That's exactly right. <laughs> and so I'm like, I know like Tyler and I have had these deep discussions and we've discussed so many things, whether it's at in a hotel lobby at a sport movement mm-hmm. skill conference or something like that. It's just hours of conversation. And then, you know, I was this morning when I was just thinking about podcasts, I'm like, I was reminiscing in my head about our old school, right. all things movement and motor learning podcasts those were fun those yeah were a blast. So, that, was a, that was a long time ago but that was yeah a blast. so several years ago myself tyler sean mishka and michaels weeple i think those like the core four there that's right we just like get up on a saturday or sunday morning and just hit record and talk for like two hours <laughs> not longer <laughs> sometimes than we had yeah, to hit in yeah exactly and i think we ended up doing like four or five so if you I go to youtube four, and yeah. you just and you just like type in you know, all things movement and motor learning, mm-hmm. you'll see those, those old episodes. And so if this episode intrigues you at all, <laughs> go, go listen to those. And uh, those are some fun times. So I, I just, yeah, knew that I wanted to have you on and I knew that we would have a really good discussion because you've done a lot of stuff since, like, since we really dove in deep on some That's of this right. stuff, you've, you've been doing a lot. So I definitely want to, you know, know what's changed, what, what things have, you know, become more clear to you, like all that good stuff. So before we get there, Mm -hmm. uh, just go ahead and give the listener your background, what you've done educationally, professionally, and then what you're doing now. Yeah. Well, like I said, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to today. It's going to be a fun day. Man, I have been in the industry nearly 20 years now, and I've done a lot of, a lot of, worn a lot of hats, done a lot of things within the industry from strength and conditioning coach to sport, you know, a sport movement coach. I, I was a position coach, a running backs coach. I have worked with punters and kickers as a position coach. I have worked as a private scale acquisition specialist. I'm now in the academic space more than I am in the actual practitioner space. I have termed pracademic. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. kind of having, a, having a hand in both. Yep. I still work with athletes on field and in the weight room about two months a year, but I do spend a majority of my year in research and putting together journal articles and the like. So yeah, I've been in the industry nearly 20 years now and have a master's in kinesiology from the University of Minnesota. And then I'm currently pursuing my doctorate in sport and exercise. So my emphasis is coach development and skill acquisition. And I'm doing that at the University of Gloucestershire, which is in Southwestern England, and it is remote. (laughs) Uh, But I have two incredible supervisors and a lot of good critical friends as they're called. And it's been an incredible journey. And I have, let's see, I've in the past, uh, about a year and a half or so, I've released three uh, three journal articles that I was uh, you know privileged to be involved with. I'm working on three other ones right now. Two of the journal articles are actually already released. One of them on Frontiers is actually going to be out in about a week or so. So I'm looking forward to the release awesome. of that paper. I'm really excited about that one. And then yeah, it's been it's been a journey. Like I mentioned, you know, as a strength conditioning coach and wearing that hat and maybe being a bit more isolated and within that that space in that area and realizing there's a need to to have interdepartmental work and bridge the gap between different departments. And we're seeing that, you know, globally, we're seeing that position, that department of methodology, that director of performance position emerging because there's the need to connect everyone. And so that's really where my focus is at the moment is not only on skill acquisition, or I I prefer skill adaptation because I don't think it's an acquired (laughs) entity, if you will. That skill acquisition is, is my area of emphasis and then running emergence. So a movement skill education company and focusing on the coach development side is something I'm passionate about because 
it's 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 incredible because I don't have all the answers, but what I do have a good grasp of is the theory you know, of motor behavior, and I I am yeah. a believer of ecological dynamics, and so utilize that to to view and analyze the emergence of movement, pun intended sure. there. And so yeah, <laughs> that's where I spend most of my time, and it's been it's been great. I have about a year or just over a year left of my doctorate, and it's been a fun journey. But I am I am ready to to, to close that chapter and continue. <laughs> yeah, but I appreciate you having me on today. Yeah, absolutely. So talk about talk about the research you're doing a little a little bit more. You know, skill acquisition or motor learning research is is difficult. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a mm-hmm. it's a difficult area to do to do research. And how how are you going about doing that? Like what what are some of the things you're looking at? Like what are the challenges you face in, mm-hmm. in getting the, the research done for your dissertation? Yeah, just give us give a little overview of what that's been like. Well, to illuminate that first point of how difficult it is, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm not now doing, and and I ended up transitioning to a different project because my first project, this is going to come at no surprise to some of the listeners here, I bit off a bit more than I was able to chew. So my first project was going to be looking at the actualization of opportunities for action, also termed affordances in ecological psychology or ecological dynamics. Those mean mm-hmm. looking at the actualization of opportunities for action on game day for American football running backs. So like, why were they, you know, accepting certain opportunities, whether that be bouncing the ball to the outside, cutting back to the, you know, to the middle, whether that be running over a defender. So I was going to have eye tracking glasses on the running backs. I was going to be doing an ethnographic and action research. So working with a local high school here where I was going to be doing a lot of observing of the unfolding interactions, but then the action research side was going to be then sitting with the coaches, not just the running backs coach, because obviously behavior affords behavior and the defenders are important, but sitting with sure. the defense as well, defensive staff as well, and helping not not me design everything, but have conversations with them to see what we could do to make it more ecologically driven to make it more representative of the sport to where there are alive movement problems to solve versus it being yep. something that's maybe more passive where it's predetermined or rehearsed, which is what you would normally see across most sports, but specifically American football. And then see, did, does their behavior change whenever it counts? So mm-hmm. that's what <laughs> I was going to do. And my supervisor, Keith David, he was like, Tyler, that is a fantastic project. Do you have 50 hours a week? No, sir, yeah, I do not. Say, you're literally trying to answer like one of the big questions. Yeah. Like, why are they once with this? Why are they actualizing the affordances that they are? So yeah. I, he said, why don't you have a, a doctoral student later on do that? So that's what I, that's what I <laughs> intend to do. So I, I pivoted and I'm, you know, as I mentioned, I'm very curious about coach development and yeah. what, what do coaches, what impact coaches perceive from the, the material that they interact with, whether that be in person, online whether it's in an informal setting, such as them just searching the internet or reading through journal articles or books, whether it's non-formal, which would be like Emergence, our, co- you know, our company Emergence, where we put together courses for specific population groups, or whether it's formal, such as university level or, or governing bodies, things of that nature. So why do co- what do coaches perceive? What impact do they perceive from their experiences? And that more importantly, how is it impactful after they have applied the ideas, not can they hmm. go take a test and, and answer what, what is movement skill acquisition or what is degeneracy yeah. or what is this, what does attunement mean? That's fantastic. Yeah. How can you put the ideas into practice and yeah. play? Yeah. And so what I'm doing and what my research entails is I have, I have a two stage approach. I've already completed the first stage. I'm in the middle of the second stage right now. I won't speak too much about it because <laughs> we'll, we'll let it all, all completely unfold here, but I am looking into the, the perceived impact that coaches have crossed the globe, you know, from multiple, multiple countries, different social cultural backgrounds, and how they are applying an ecological approach to their learning environments yeah. and then the impact that they perceive after they have gone through education underpinned by ecological dynamics. So yeah. not saying necessarily that they they have to adopt that approach. They're coming to emergence willingly because we are utilizing, I am utilizing emergence as a platform and Uh, remaining unbiased in doing so. It's great because when I initially started this project, I was curious about how online learning was impacting coaches because that's a, it's a growing, massively growing area. Not that it's not in person, but I wanted to know, like, that's how a lot of people source their education. I want to know what impact they perceive and then how it's changed their practice. 
And at the time, there weren't really any companies out there that were ecologically you know, driven outside yeah. of emergence. And so it was like, yeah. you know what, this is obviously could potentially be a conflict of interest, but I declared that in my ethics. And quite frankly, it's like, if it improves emergence, fantastic. But really what I want is to improve the community's understanding of how education might be able to be designed. That way coaches have a choice and they can understand yeah, exactly. like, do I, do I want to approach this from traditional approaches to scale acquisition, such as information processing, or do I want to approach this more ecologically? Do I want to involve the athletes? Do I want yeah. to be more of a dictator? So I care more about just like, hey, if, if, if this wasn't impactful, that's fantastic. How can this be improved? And not just for, for us, but more importantly for all, because yeah. like I mentioned, I'm pursuing my doctorate remotely. Like this can help out universities and how the education is designed and how the interactions unfold. So in yeah. short, to answer your question, my research is centered around coach development and skill acquisition and how they are perceiving impact within their professional practice after they have applied the ideas and what strengths they perceived, what, what gaps they perceived, the confidence level changes, interactions that they're seeing unfold in a different way. Are they seeing the athlete's skill set improve? So on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I just want to, before I forget, I want to mention if you're, if you're listening to this episode and, you know, Tyler's using some terms, ecological psychology, ecological dynamics, things like that. I want to refer you to episode with Rob Gray, who I've had on previously. What we did in that episode was kind of like a, like a one-on-one type, like, all mm -hmm. right, here's the traditional view of motor learning and or skill acquisition. Here's more of an ecologically driven view. What are the differences? What are the potential advantages of an ecological view? All that kind of stuff. So um, if you're like, okay, I'm not really sure about these terms and the approach, yeah, go listen to Rob's episode. And because Tyler and I are kind of kind of dive in, we're, we're not really going to spend a ton of time there today. So, and I'll touch on some for sure, but I will say yeah. that Rob's the man, you know, and that's why <laughs> I thought it was, it was great to have Rob do it just because he does such a nice job of laying it out in a very digestible way. And so certainly that was a great episode. I've listened to it twice. So certainly listen to that episode. It's, it's going to be very helpful. I mean, you, the listeners here, you guys will pick up on a majority of what's being put down simply because I'll, I'll, I'll say it in context, but definitely listen to that episode. Yes. Awesome. Two times. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I've listened to it twice. It's a good one. All right. So today we are going to discuss specifically American football and how to improve movement skills for, for that sport. And obviously Tyler has a very strong American football background. But one of your papers is, mm -hmm. is on this topic. You, you, you exactly released a right. paper on utilizing an ecological approach to the improvement of movement skill for American football players. So that's another reference, and this, that'll be in the show notes for sure but with this episode. But you know, that was released in 2022. So like mm -hmm. when you actually wrote the thing, it might have been... Who knows when? It was and, before and that. So like, it was before yeah, that. Yeah. Put it that way. And, and so like a significant amount of time has passed. And, you know, it's, it might be kind of nice to do an update or just like how mm -hmm. that paper has landed or things that you've thought about since that paper, but specifically for the purposes of enhancing the movement skill in football. And, and I'll, I'll just say this and Tyler, like moving forward, obviously we can use whatever terminology if you're thinking like, okay, what are they talking about movement skill? What does that really mean? Mm -hmm. I think from a traditional standpoint, if we're thinking strength and conditioning sports performance coaches. I mean, the easiest like bridge here would be your speed and agility work. Like that's, that's kind of what we're talking about where it's like, we're trying to, we're trying to increase either a physical quality or a Rob turn to action capacity. And then that in turn is intended to improve on-field performance in the game and context. Like some of the things that Tyler mentioned earlier with mm -hmm. our coaches, like, are they able to apply the information? I think moving forward, we'll say movement skill because movement is a, a little more global term. It's not just about those physical qualities because we all know that improving those alone does not always equate to improved performance on the field. And, and Tyler will talk about some of the, the factors that need to be considered that when we're doing that. So where I want to start with this is basically identifying the needs of the athlete. Okay, so we're, we want to make them a better mover, more skilled, more adaptable, someone who is in the game who can, you know, make plays, someone mm -hmm. who can adapt to ever-changing situations and be a, you know, we, we use the term problem solver. We ultimately want athletes who are adaptable and are great problem solvers. So that 
the traditional like drill approach, like we're going to do a bunch of drills. We don't, we don't think really fosters that. Okay. So the question though is, is like, all right, where do I start? Like, how do I start the construction of better activities or so to speak? Well, I think we would both agree that it has to start with an assessment or an identification of what's needed to, to be successful at a given sport and or position. So mm-hmm. let's start with, with how coaches, performance coaches can start that process and some things that they need to look for when trying to assess and identify what the athlete needs to do in training. The great question. It's a huge question, but a very good one. Before I address it, I'll, I'll briefly mention just to kind of recap that there are a number of ways to, to digest this information or really even to discuss movement skill. You know, we'll focus more so on the player development side, the, the performance side, strength and conditioning side that the names are changing for good reason, because it's capturing more of what maybe should be done versus it being just isolating and focusing on one thing. But that's where I'll try to center this conversation. Whereas the paper that you mentioned, I would encourage all to read it especially kind of taking in the the first half of it, which is really talking about analyzing the emergence of movement, the importance of an ecological approach specifically situated within American football. And I say American football because I work with a lot of colleagues overseas. And I say we have uh, to. Football is going to be different. (laughs) It's different. Uh, It's different. So you have to. And then, you know, we followed that with case examples. And and that would be, you were right in saying, like, that would probably be the best way to say, like, speed and agility within the paper itself we actually talk about it as game speed or football speed yes Uh, and football speed transcends a traditional way of viewing speed because it captures the athlete's knowledge of meaning what they are actually going to be picking up perceptually within the game so think about you know running straight ahead is fantastic in a in a fast way Mm -hmm. but i need to run straight ahead while picking up information auditory information visual information do i need to you know, conversion on a ball carrier. Do I need to elude someone? Is someone moving at a certain angle? So on and so forth. So speed is yeah. very different. Center of mass may be changing in sports like soccer or other sports whenever I'm needing to change direction. So there is a, a, a dynamic difference there. And if not that the other, I guess, more, more decontextualized work isn't valuable, but it's helping us dampen impact forces. It's, it's being good for reasons such as that, but there is, there are limitations to spending too much time there. And then the other thing to mention is that uh, you, I think you capture it well saying movement. So how, how is a performance coach then, do we analyze, is that your question? How do we analyze movement yes. to then put together good activities? And yes. I prefer yep. the usage of the term activities over drills because I think it is a platform for then how the interactions unfold and what we intend to see from our athletes. And what I, why I say that is drill tends to imply that there's one way of being and doing. There's an idealized mm. technique. There's a perfect model and that perfect no- model needs to be achieved. Otherwise it's incorrect. And that strips yes. athletes of authenticity and expressing themselves in ways that may be allowing for good movement variability so they can solve different problems, meaning they can shoot and make baskets in different ways. They, they can navigate through traffic and lacrosse in different ways or in American football, like our conversation here, they are more seamlessly flipping in and out of space to elude tackers. Mm. So I prefer it for that reason. But then what does that open us up to? That opens us up to engaging with the athlete. And that opens us up to being able to design things that are going to be more fruitful, more representative, more alive. So for the first starting point here, strength coaches out there, performance coaches, player development coaches, however you identify yourself, have to watch the sport. You have to. I'll be the first to admit mm. I didn't. I mean, I watched it, but I was more just watching it as a fan cheering and yeah. jumping up and down. And I was all excited. I wasn't watching the interactions that were unfolding. I wasn't watching, you know, were they, were they getting tackled more often in space when they were moving at high speeds? Were they getting tackled more often mm. in traffic whenever there was more change of direction, but more importantly, picking up of processual information, decision-making that's occurring, the complete movement problem-solving process. Were they getting tackled more there? I'm using a like ball carrier mm. example, of course. Yeah. So analyzing sure. the interactions. Now, I know you may think to yourself, well, I'm not going to be designing the the actual like individual periods and the half-line activities and the team sports. I understand that. But we've got to bridge the gap. And before yeah. I continue, like for far too long, strength coaches are just like, I need to make them stronger and, and more powerful. Fantastic. Everyone can do that. Okay. Some better than others. We've got to take further steps along the bridge. 
We can't just step one, step two, and then we expect the football coach is going to handle the rest. Because unfortunately, yeah. I think we can all acknowledge this, a lot of individual periods are very rote, very predetermined. It doesn't look, feel, or behave anything like the sport. Then they're thrown into the sport, and we wonder why they don't perform exceptionally well. Because no one's bridging that gap. Yeah. And so I think that yeah. departments can work together. So by analyzing the interactions that are unfolding, we can learn more about, are they starting to freeze up because, not because they don't have the strength and power capabilities, but because they're seeing someone move at angles that are freezing their degrees of freedom. So think about their perceptual degrees of freedom and where they're orienting their head, how they're trying to pick up information from an auditory perspective maybe the decisions that they may be making and you see them kind of stutter and get stuck and get tackled in that way. But you're like, man, this guy jumped, you know, or this, you know, whoever jumped a 40 inch vertical, why can't they break <laughs> that tackle? Why can't they elude someone? Well, maybe it's not a movement capacity issue. Okay. Or, yeah. or an action capability, action capacity issue. Maybe it's a decision making a perceptual pickup issue. Well, how as a coach then can I be beneficial? Well, then your traditional drills that you would normally see in, in an agility period are no longer change of direction drills. I'm not saying you have to throw it out the window. Okay. I'm, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not naive to think that the coach is just going to go up, oh, not going to do five, 10 fives anymore. I'm not going to do any cutting at cones anymore. And, you know, I, I think there's yeah. better ways to use our time, but yeah, let's, let's maybe eliminate part of that and replace it with there's a body in front of me and we're both running at one another. One person's going to be trying to move left, right, or maybe at an angle, and the other person's then trying to track them out. Basically, they're trying to pick up the orientation of their body, and they're trying to, to you know, two-hand tag them. They're trying to converge on them like they would be tackling them. And I, I, I do want to mention this, like, especially if it's in the offseason, it doesn't have to be only offense and defense doing it. There's benefits of both because teams, players Absolutely. can play on special teams anyway, most often. Yep. So that's just one example of like why you would want to analyze the movements because if you see that they're they're getting beat most often in space at high speeds, well, what I'm doing is I'm jotting down notes and saying, you know, I'm noticing across day games and night games and away games and home games, they're not excelling in these types of problems. And yes, I do look mm -hmm. at it as movement problems. Okay, that's one thing to note there. Okay, I've noted that they do well in this situation. That doesn't mean I'm not going to to put them in that situation anymore. So, but if they do well in traffic, I might have a number of moving defenders in front of the individual and they've got to weave and navigate through traffic. It doesn't have to be like the game. It doesn't even have to be with a ball necessarily because I understand that there are limitations there sometimes. Yeah, But absolutely. we call them just, just navigation activities, net traffic navigation activities. And an individual mm -hmm. is needing to move in between maybe four or five individuals that are moving at varying speeds. So it can start slow. It can start fast. You know, you as a coach know your environment, you choose it. And then on the opposite side, there's one, two defenders that are, that are moving and they're having to search through traffic. And then that let's call them ball carrier, even they, even though they might not be carrying a ball, they've got to <laughs> navigate through, they've got to be creative with their movements. And then they're trying to elude that person on the opposite end. You can yeah. amplify that activity by having a chaser behind the individuals mm. that that's trying to navigate because, you know, behavior affords behavior and the constraint at that moment in time, whether that's task constraint, environmental, individual, think fatigue, things of that nature, that's all going to change the way in which someone moves. So big number one, you have to watch the sport. You have to watch them move in the game or at least, you know, on film, you know, if you don't have access to attend every single game. And I'm not saying you need to watch every single snap like my friend, our friend, Sean Mishka does. I mean, I'll yeah. be first to admit, <laughs> I don't. I'm like, I can't even get every snap. But watch a lot yeah. of them and have enough understanding of where do they, where are their gaps? You know, I, I prefer to term them as gaps. Now, I know you might be saying, man, this guy's telling me to do this. I've got 110 athletes. Yeah. Guess what? A lot of players struggle in similar situations. And even the ones that may not struggle in those situations will benefit more from that, in my humble opinion, and from empirical evidence, than they will just cutting at a cone. So... I will attack it from more of a global perspective. It can also be done, you know, if, with different positions. So it's, you know, your big guys can still benefit from doing things like this because those big guys, they're oftentimes put in positions where, you know, they've got to kick, they've got to slide, they've got to move in harmony and synchrony with someone else, but they become overly rigid. They can't move well, can't bend yeah. well. How many times have you heard mm -hmm. that? 
Well, <laughs> we want to develop athletes as well. So that would be the yeah. very first thing I would do. The second thing, and I know I elaborated quite a bit on that one. The second thing, and this one is across the board for sports coaches. Well, the first one was as well, but for sports coaches, performance yeah. coaches, talk to your athletes. What do they feel as though they struggle with in game, in practice? Are they struggling in situations that are similar to what you're picking up? Or are they different? What do they think that an activity would be beneficial? What would it look like? So I lean heavily on, and I delivered a presentation centered around this, and we talked about it a fair amount in the American football paper. And then a, a good friend of mine has written a paper centered around representative co-design. But you work with your athletes. Your athletes are the ones playing the game. And the way they perceive the game is different than how you do. Because the way they perceive it is going to be this relationship that's then formed. And that's where those affordances that I talked about earlier, those opportunities for action, that's where those are going to emerge because I move very differently than Barry Sanders does. So if I design the exact same drill where we're cutting at a cone, okay, we may both yeah. get a little bit better because we're dampening impact forces through joint flexion and isometric contractions, but we're not working anything perceptually or cognitively. Maybe he's not mm -hmm. being challenged a different way. So those would be, I'll stop there because I've, I've obviously spoken a yeah. lot. Those first two, just to recap, yeah. Watch the interactions, set up activities that are similar to what you're seeing on field. Even if you don't have a ball, even if you're just out on the turf, you know, whether it's two V two, two V three, whether it's five V three and the, you know, you've got a blocker in, in front of a, a ball carrier, let's call it uh, air quotes, a ball carrier that doesn't have a ball, but a blockers shielding, you know, a defender and he's having to then work off of his blocker, pick up the orientation of their hips. So I'll stop there. I have a feeling a direction yeah. you may go from this, but I'll stop there. <laughs> you, have, you have a feeling you'll know it will emerge. <laughs> well, I, I just have a suspicion that, you know, because this is a question that's been asked to me, you know, more times than I can yeah. count. Like someone hears mm -hmm. that that works from, let's say, on a performance side. They're like, okay, I, I picked up a lot that I can do. I didn't even think about being able to just put a person in front of a person and have them track them out, maybe even mirror them to some way, like. That, wow, that's a, that's a really simple change that makes it more game-like. But I'm not the sport coach. Mm. Well, yeah. there's two things, two things to say that. First being, and I'm a straight shooter. I also don't have it all figured out, but I, this part I'm pretty certain I'm right on. Go watch individual periods, and I want you to honestly tell yourself whether they are benefiting the athletes much more than maybe a one on a scale, one to 10, across the board. Okay, I was, a, I was like, yep. I was part of this issue back when I was a running backs coach. Mm -hmm. So if we're spending 15, 20, 25, 30 minutes in individual periods, wasting their time, and then we go over to half line activities and full game activities, they've missed out on some of the complexity that might be a little bit easier for them. Well, who's, mm -hmm. who's doing that? That's where I feel like yeah. that the performance yeah. staff without maybe some of the equipment while valuable, that's where. The performance staff, if they have good relationships with the sport coaches, which we should be able to talk to one another like adults and say, hey, we're collectively trying to achieve the same thing. What yeah. do you feel as though that we can do to assist you in the off season or wherever it may be that would allow for you to see more dexterous movers or, or just say better, better, better athletes, you know, better, better. Yeah, movers. right. Well, that's yes. one major area that has been identified. So I, I think that there's a conversation that needs to be had. And whether it's through high school level or collegiate level or professional level, I know professional is different in some times where you can't have a body in front of another body, but most often you can, you just can't have a football, but it doesn't mean you can't yeah. be carrying a ball or they can't be catching some type of a ball because there's a yeah. different skill set right. whenever someone's having to receive something under pressure and elude an individual. Yeah. So a couple of things come to my mind listening to you, to you talk about that. I mean, that argument to me kind of falls apart pretty easily for a, for a few different reasons. Number one, if you see yourself as the bridge, the bridge maker, the gap filler, well, there, there's that issue is solved. Like you don't, if you, if you see yourself as someone who is feeling an area that's just not being addressed, well, that's where you focus. Like the first thing I think about it in this is it's, it's very similar in, in return to play. Mm -hmm. There's yep, a massive gap. Right. But between rehab, like acute rehab, and getting back to the field. This is known. And mm -hmm. who's been filling that gap largely? Strength coaches. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, if you have no problem filling that gap, which has, you know, scope of practice elements to it, you should, this gap should be, it's very similar. Like you're, you're just, you're, you're, you're the bridge. You're, you're someone who is like trying to connect those things, like identify where that gap is and, and then, mm-hmm. and then you can fill it. And the other thing is we know that the s- skill needed for contextual speed football speed let's let's call it i love i love the fact you guys use that term in the paper because people get it like people know what you mean with that different type of speed yeah uh, i mean we we quoted jerry rice and bill belichick in there yes yeah you (laughs) quoted belichick and rice and they they talk about this and like it's like one of those things strength coaches kind of roll their eyes at when commentators talk about it but it's this thing that that football coaches and football players they kind of naturally know is there that just because you're fast on a stopwatch doesn't mean you've got the, the quote unquote football speed. So anyway, no, we know those are different skills. The skill of, of being a good problem solver in context and the, the actual coordination that emerges from those interactions are not the same as different. the things you will do running around cones. Different skill. Or whatever it may be. Something that's decontextualized. So from that argument alone, you have to be at least considering these, these issues, like you've got to know that like, if, if you're doing something around cones, if you're doing something on a whistle without any perceptual information other than that whistle, like I saw, I'm sure you saw this too a while back. I don't, I don't can't remember what team it was, but I just saw it on social media. They were literally having athletes run in a straight line side to side and changing direction on a whistle. Hmm. That's it. That was the drill. You cannot tell me those are the same movement patterns that are going to happen when they're actually changing direction with another human, like present. The argument is always, well, I've got to teach good movement skills or good movement patterns. The pattern you're teaching when it's decontextualized is not the movement pattern that you're going to see in context. It's, it's mm-hmm. just not. So like that to me, again, is a way that this argument, it just kind of falls, falls flat if you say, I am the strength coach or the performance coach. I'm not the sport coach. I don't, I don't deal with that stuff. Well, you probably Mm -hmm. should because it impacts the way your athletes move. So anyway, that's just kind of my, my I I felt about it. Yeah. I appreciate the elaboration. I think the biggest, there was two things that you mentioned there. Number one, with regard to return to play or return to performance. I mean, let's face it. It's like, okay, great. They have X amount of flexion. Now they can produce so-and-so force through a force plate. They're off you go. Well, they can't get back into the sport. Like there, there wasn't, there, mm-hmm. there wasn't enough information that would be specifying to them so they can move in a way that's beneficial on a field for American football. So who does bridge that gap? And that's where performance coaches come in. So a lot of what I'm mentioning, and it doesn't have to be at full speed all the time. It can be at, at an ownership speed as, as Sean Mishka terms, like ownership speed. So that might be, mm-hmm. like, I want you to move at 75% ownership speed here as you're navigating through this gauntlet with moving individuals in front of you. And in doing so, you're gaining confidence in movement and planting on that, that reconstructed right ACL and things of that nature. And so it, in doing that, you're, we're adequately preparing athletes to then return to larger slices of the sport or, that are going return to, to these then, interactions. Yeah. Returning to these interactions. Yeah. And then as far as the, the development of these activities, I think one of the biggest, like after we, we jump this hurdle, the other question that's usually posed is, well, I have, I work with. So-and-so university or high school, I have 110 athletes. Well, a lot of these universities have three to five strength coaches. So like, let's, let's break off into some groups here, or let's have multiple individuals that are helping facilitate. So not really as much of an issue there. And then I understand that it can be overwhelming with that amount. I've done it. I've done it with youth and we're talking 40, 50, eight to 12 year olds that I'm not trying to necessarily prepare them to be better football players per se. I want them mm-hmm. to just get a move in more unique and creative ways because yeah. I think that's the platform for dexterity in sport. And so my point is, is yes, it's going to take a little bit more work on the onset. It's a real simple conversation, you know, whether that's in a, in a meeting room, you know, or whether that is out on the field right before you yeah. begin. I mean, whenever I have athletes that come out and this is especially back when I was doing this more full time, I'd have athletes that were, they would join our sessions and I would say, I would say something as simple as, and they were usually invited. So they were usually told by the athlete that invited them, this is going to be a little different than what you've, you've done before. This isn't mm-hmm. going to be mm-hmm. perfect route running. This isn't going to be, yeah. you know, perfect throwing with no pressure. I would just say something along the lines of, this is going to be very much 
of a guided approach. I'm here to assist you in order for you to perform the most skillfully that you possibly can. Your your word matters and you're going to have freedom and authenticity within this. And guess what? Mistakes are sometimes encouraged in these situations. I even say, I shouldn't even say sometimes because in making those mistakes, you're you're learning more about and you have knowledge of the situation where you can move more skillfully. So I think that I think that the argument of I have too many people in front of me or, you know, I, I can't do it because I have as many bodies. It's actually a, a bit easier, you know, to do with, with yeah, larger numbers than it is with, yeah. with fewer numbers. And I know a colleague of mine at, at Emergence, Rich White, when he was at a university here in the Twin Cities, that was like one of his first, you know, come to be like, oh, I thought I used to think this was a burden having 60, 80 people. Now I realize yeah. it's actually a benefit. Yeah. I loved having 60 football players at once because it yeah, meant that we could... It. We just had way more freedom and flexibility to to have a more representative environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, One thing we didn't whereas, mention there. Yeah, I just say sorry real quick. I didn't realize my apologies for speaking over. I just yeah, I just wanted to say you you said something that sparked my memory here that we want them to have fun as well. We want them to enjoy <laughs> themselves. Let's couch the situation for a second that we're you know our jobs in line if they don't perform well. Like I get that, but let's say we're working yeah. with middle school kids or high school kids. Like we want to inspire the joy for movement. And the love for mm-hmm. movement as well and have that carry over. So I think you're going to find, you know, if you try this approach, you know, in comparison yeah. to what you've done previously, that not only are you putting them in a, in a more successful position not to injure themselves because they're, ex- they're expressing skill in a different way, they also enjoy it. Yes. Rob, Rob mentioned that same thing in his okay. episode. Yeah, of that's like, right, he did. Especially when we talk about youth, it's just more fun. <laughs> you're, not, you're not in lines. You're not like waiting around or there's not so much like, do this, do that. It's explorative. You're building a vast movement toolbox. And as they get older, like I think they, what they appreciate, and you can, you can chime in here too. They just appreciate that it clearly looks and feels more like their sport. You know, a lot of athletes, they're always wondering, is this, is this going to be specific? Is this sport specific? Is this the right training for me? Well, if you take, I guess, more of this approach when we are trying to look at the interactions, the specific interactions that they're facing, mm-hmm. they know like, oh yes, this is, this is a thing that I deal with on the field. So for our, our remaining 20-ish minutes here, where I'd like to kind of go next is the actual construction of these activities of, of you know, we've mentioned a lot so far of, of like things that can be done, but I, I guess what I would like you to do is walk through, I'm going to, I'm going to use maybe a, a swear word term in the, in the world of ecological dynamics, uh, progression, oh, uh, <laughs> progression, so to speak, of activities that, you know, kind of thinking, all right, we know we've identified an area where an athlete struggles in an interaction. Mm-hmm. We have to expand their movement toolbox. We're trying to create a better athlete here. We're trying to help them deal with these scenarios they struggle within. Where, how can we start from like a more simplified, dialed back information type activity? towards like building up their movement skill toolbox and expanding it as they maybe get closer to the season? Yeah, that's a great question. First of and all, feel, there's feel free to feel free to use like a very specific example here. I think that that might help, especially is just if you want to use like a specific thing you've done in the past or, mm-hmm. or whatever it may be, just kind of like showing how you can build this out. So I'll probably lean on one that I've mentioned already that was a specific example, but I'll build it out a little bit more. But before I get there, there's nothing wrong with the, the usage of the term progression. I think the only issue with it, though, is that there's a perfect way to progress and there isn't. Mm. I prefer the term of scaling the complexity. So mm. we're scaling the complexity of the problem. That can be done in many different ways, but it needs to meet the athlete or athletes that you're working with. So yeah, I, I'll throw this out next, which is there's not a cookbook of drills. That that's the issue I think that some have is like, well, I'm so used to having the 40 exercises that I'm going to do and they're going to be done in this order. And let's work harder than that. And and I think let's work harder than that because it's going to be more beneficial for the athletes. And I did that previously as well. And it makes coaching easier because you start to just try to automate your actions and you're you're almost doing it regardless of who's in front of you. And I think that's just damaging. I don't think it's overly helpful for mm. the individuals you're working with. And I'm not, I'm not calling out coaches and saying like, you don't care because clearly you care, but like maybe you just hadn't thought about it before. So scaling yeah. the complexity, number one, 
And that can be done in a number of different ways than I'll offer an example. That can be changing the size of the space that you're interacting in. That could be for going from a small to a really large or a large to a really small or back and forth. That can be the number of bodies within the space. So changing the numerical relations. You know, maybe you start with a 1v1 because it is a bit easier of a problem to solve for an athlete that's maybe you have a running back that's, you know, just got moved up and he's a, he's going to be a 10th grader this year and he's going to potentially be your starting back or, or have at least some carries. And he hasn't looked overly good in, in, in some of the film he's had previously, but he, but he seems to have potential. Well, maybe we don't start in a 3v1 situation, 3v2 situation where he's working off of a blocker in space where he's moving at great speeds. Not only is that potentially harmful for him where he might injure himself, but that's going to be a probably heavily complex situation for him, problem for him to solve. So maybe it's just a 1v1 where, you know, I as the, I as the ball carrier, I'm moving towards an individual that's moving right at me. Okay. It could be at an angle slightly, or it could be directly at me. And I'm trying to shake him or her and move in a direction opposite from them, whether that's a 90 degree cut or a 45 degree cut cut. You're not trying to coach them on their cuts per se. You're just telling them, I want you to move towards this individual. And at a certain point, I want you to try to evade them, try to shake them, be deceptive with your, with your actions. You can change tempos, change levels, be creative with it. And in doing so, it's a pretty seamless problem for them to solve. They should be able to do it rather well, but in doing so, they're now becoming more sensitive to information that's important or specifying for them in context, which is bearing angles of a defender or velocities of defenders that are moving, or they become more sensitive to what's referred to as the interpersonal distance, the, the distance mm. between me and the individual in front of me. You can change numerical relations, size of the space. You can add equipment in there. So let's say you are in a position where you can use a ball. Maybe it's not a football, but you can use a ball. That can be tossed to this individual as they're trying to elude a, a person in a, in a small space. And it's a 1v1 yeah. situation because now the notion of receiving an object under pressure where there's probably a little anxiety present, that's where there's a whole different skill set that's now more, if you want to use the term transferable, more transferable. Yes. So yeah. those are some really simple examples. I, I, I won't say I always start 1v1, but a lot of times I do because it gives me a chance as the practitioner to see how are they solving problems today based on their individual mm-hmm. constraints? Are they overly sore and they're not getting in and out of cuts as well? Or are they not as sensitive to the information because it's been three months since I've had them and now I'm not going to throw them back into a 3v3 activity where they have two blockers in front of them and three defenders. It's been three months. They're not sensitive, attuned to the information. Yeah. Now, conversely, I mentioned the example earlier where, you know, I'm just going to lean on this running back example. So if I'm working with a running back and, you know, and this is something that's, I think, often forgotten, but a lot of times you're not just in space and there's one defender in front of you. You're working off the blocks of a teammate right. and you're picking up what opportunities they provide you and vice versa. And then, and then what the behavior might unfold like from the defenders because of the individual in front of you. So it could be a 2v2 situation. You start with you know, four individuals, let's say they're roughly eight yards apart, seven yards apart, five yards apart, 10, that comes down to analyzing the interactions once again. And, you know, whether it's on the whistle or just kind of a slowly, like the slow movement kind of initiates the activity. And then the intention is to make it to this line to gain by the individual that either does or doesn't have a ball. And he's working off of a blocker. You're changing through repetition without repetition. You're changing the distance between the two to start. You're changing the size of the space. And then you have two defenders. Maybe you're taking one away. Maybe you're adding one and you're seeing how the actions unfold. And I say actions. I don't mean just the motor actions. I mean the complete integrated movement solution that's fitting, like fitting that problem. That's fitting that peculiar problem. And that's what really what I think coaches are doing, both sport coaches and performance coaches. We're analyzing the interactions to see what the problem looks like to see if our athletes are embedded in a situation where they can organize a functional or an integrated movement solution. So an example would then be a 2v2, and it doesn't have to then go to a 3v3. You could use that 2v2, but go, you know what? I'm going to expand this now by five yards and have more space in between to start the activity. Well, yeah, you guys are smart. You girls, ladies out there are smart. All that's going to do is going to increase the velocity more than likely at which they're moving, which is going to mean that it's going to be much more difficult for them to seamlessly get in and out of cuts, things of that nature. That's where we start to see 
true decision-making in practice, true game speed come alive because you're embedded within a live movement problems that are vibrant, that are replete with opportunities for interaction where they can make good decisions, maybe make incorrect, if you want to call it that decisions. And all of this can be done, whether it's in helmets and pads with a football, it can be done just with shorts and shirts in the off season. And those are the situations where I feel as though we are benefiting our athletes and then the sky's the limit from there. I mean, we can go in a number of different directions, but you know, you can be, let's give you a different example. So let's say it's a, a quarterback and maybe you can throw a ball, you know, or maybe, maybe you can't, but if say you can throw a ball rather than just throwing it on air to a receiver that's running a route on air, maybe they're running one or two routes. They have an option route, whether it's an in and an out, maybe it's a, you know, an, you know, go route and some type of a slant route or something. And I, as the quarterback, am having to pick up the nuances and tempo of that route that's being run, the stem that's being yeah. run. But not only that, I'm picking up the interpersonal distance between the cornerback, whether or they're running a soft or a press coverage. And then I have pressure that may or may not come off the edge. Well, that pressure is going to change the way I step up in the pocket, the way I may release the ball. So I'm not saying that they're going to get hit, but they would get in a situation where it's a firm two-handed tag. So now you're seeing a small slice of the sport where that quarterback might need to tuck it and run. They, they might be able to throw a, a quick slant route. They might be able to throw a go route. Now, I'm obviously talking more about the sport now. Quarterbacks can still be beneficial doing some of these similar activities where they're carrying the ball because I don't know if I've talked <laughs> to a single football coach that's like, nope, I don't want a mobile quarterback. Don't <laughs> right. you, you don't hear that, yeah. you know? Yeah. So those are just a couple yeah. of examples, but I guess like to recap, Scaling the complexity by looking at the numerical relations, the size of the space. I haven't even begun to talk about the surface in which you're interacting on. So whether that's turf, whether that's grass, or let's say you're able to change the time of practice, the timing of the start of practice. Well, what happens if you're, I'm in Minnesota here, we're coming into late, I guess, middle of spring, late spring, early summer. Well, there's going to be more humidity and moisture on the grass. If I move it to the morning time or late at night, which might be when most of my games may be in the evening time and there's more moisture on the surface, that's going to change the way I interact with that surface. So the solution that then emerges is going to be different. So you're not coaching them on their emerging technique per se, but you're designing a learning environment that allows for them to interact with that information, which is going to be important for them to interact with on game day. So you can kind of see where I'm going there. I'll give one last example. Let's say you took that same 1v1 or the same 2v3, 2v2 that I was talking about. You've already manipulated the interpersonal distance to start. You've changed the spot on the field. Maybe uh, you've changed the line to gain in some way to where they've got to achieve you know, less yardage. Well, you can also have them do that in a fatigue state. The way in which they move is going to be different if they're in a fatigue state versus in a refreshed state. So I guess what I'm saying is I encourage coaches to think about these constraints that you yeah. might be able to manipulate. And then what I did to make this easier when I was at facilities and, and running a lot of these activities or overseeing them, we would have conversations around, you know, hypotheticals. What might you do in this situation if you see so-and-so? Because what we're doing as coaches is we're also improving our skill set. We're becoming more sensitive yeah. and attuned to how they're moving on the field. And then we are looking to change the activity in some way that might invite them to behave in a different way that's going to increase upon their skills. Yeah, absolutely. So the question I'll, I'll this will be our last question. The whole goal is to expand their, their toolbox, to make them more athletic, to make them more adaptable. My, my insecurity, my, my fear, because I did many of these things that you're describing when I was a football strength coach, because it is, a, it's, it's more quote unquote hands off. I'm not like telling them what to do and when. I want to comment on you that. Know, the inter- Don't let me forget. I want to comment on that. Okay. You know, we're using rep without rep, rep without rep. So the, the, the problems are solving are different. Every single rep. I, I still like in the back of my head, I'm thinking, you know, I know these are things that, that I believe will expand their toolbox, but I, I'm still not sure if I am. Now, obviously like part of this, the answer to this is going to be, you got to then go back and watch the game. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are some things that coaches can, can kind of like look for, identify, to get a, a sense for it, yes, am I am I expanding this athlete's toolbox? Am I making it more adaptable? Is what I'm implementing having the desired effect? 
Excellent question. And it is a million dollar question in a lot of ways, because there, there is not a perfect answer to it. And I think that some Mm -hmm. out there may say, you know, they may chuckle at that or scoff at that and think, well, I know I'm improving my athlete skill set. And I might say to that, well, great. They, they ran a faster 40 time or they were better in there or whatever it may be. That's wonderful. Yeah. Which again is an action capacity as Rob. Very isolated. Like it's very, very isolated. Not saying it's not beneficial. I'm just saying that's a small, small piece to it. So don't can, don't confuse that with their their skill in context increasing necessarily. Yeah, 100%. And, and there's also more than just quantifiable data. There's also qualitative information that you can pick up on that's informative. You nailed it on the head with the first answer, and I'll elaborate on it a little bit, but you have to watch the interactions. Are they solving more problems? Those compared to what you noted, and hopefully you took notes, and you were seeing them get tackled you know, seven out of 10 times in these 1v2 situations in open space. Now they're getting tackled, even though the problems are different. I understand that. It's never going to be the same problem. The similar unfolding problem. Now they've broken seven of those tackles, whether that be mm. not even getting touched or whether that being slipping through a broken tackle because now they're more elusive and putting themselves in a better leveraged position. That's the easiest way to do it. Now, outside of that, you got to trust yourself when you're watching them move within practice because a lot of times when we're working in team settings, coaches are fortunate enough where they can sit back and they don't have to be involved in the activity, like them themselves actually being in the middle of it. I do still sometimes, even though I'm now that I'm upwards of 40, it's becoming not as beneficial for the guys I'm with. But anyways, that's neither here <laughs> nor there. But you look at it and say, are they moving better? Do they, do they seem more fluid with the way that they move? Give it mm. a number score if you want to. That's where I started giving it a, a grade. Like I, I would say they moved, even though the problem was a little different. Like that was a seven before they were really rigid. Mm. They were stuttering and moving side to side a lot. I give that a two or a three. That's helped coaches and from yeah. what have been shared with me. And then the other thing huh. is this, and this one's a little bit different because it, it in some ways violates an ecological approach and an ecological approach. We're not necessarily wanting them to recount from some memory how they moved. I mean, think about mm-hmm. how many times where an athlete's interviewed after the game and they tell you about a, an unfolding interaction and it, it's not what you actually saw on field. We yeah. Actions are actually what's, what's answering us or their actions, how, they're, how the unfolding movement is. But it's not mm-hmm. to say that what they're sharing is not vital. Matter of fact, in the American football paper where we offered the case examples and the latter case example with the high school athletes, it was over the course of a, it was a little bit longer than four months they were not only doing what I said before, like solving more problems, completing more passes, being able to you know, converge on a ball carrier more often than getting shaken and embarrassed in space. They were doing all those, but they were like, I, the game feels slower. Now, mm-hmm. what they mean by that is their football speed has increased. Their attunement to the specifying information has increased. Because you mentioned something earlier. I want to hit on two last things here. You mentioned something along the lines of like, you know, transfer and progressions and cones and the like. What those are missing, that they're not bad, but what they're missing is specifying information. What's needed for one to control their action in context. What yep. am I talking about? A moving body. I'm talking about space. I'm talking about equipment that's similar. So constraints that would, that would emerge in gameplay. Some of those need to be available within the practice environment for an athlete to become sensitive to it. I'm sure, yeah. you know, I mean, Rob has talked about on some, on some of his podcast episodes, like the need for specifying information. There's numerous papers out there to support. So if our job is to help bridge that gap, and maybe we're never moving beyond a, a four or a five on a scale of one to 10, but what we were doing before was a mm-hmm. one or a two. If we can add a, right. a body in front of them or bodies in front of them, they're going to become more sensitive to it and move more skillfully. And then you did mention the hands-off part. It's interesting because at the Sport Movement Skill Conference this past year, I was doing a, was myself and Sean, we had a storytelling event and really what it was was just like conversation versus the presentation style, kind of similar to this. And we had Keith Davids on. I mean, one of the goats in the industry. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's written a handful of books behind me here. He is, I've been fortunate enough to to have him on. I just want to, I just want to ask who's the publisher of those books? Well, there's a human kinetics book right here that he is an author. Oh, funny. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there is a button, Seifert, Chow, Arugio, and David. So human dynamics of skill acquisition book, which is a good one. Go pick it up. Yeah. Uh, that that Sorry. said, like, no, you're good. I mean, not only am I fortunate to have him as my supervisor, but I've been, you know, I've been on several papers with him. And he, in this conversation, I said something along the lines of we, we, we being the whole community with an ecological dynamics have been accused of this hands-off approach. 
And he kind of chuckled and he said, you know, the reason why we wrote that back in the 90s was we needed coaches to, to basically stop vomiting information on athletes and, and stop trying to micromanage every aspect of every movement mm. and have them achieve it. So it was a way to kind of shake the paradigm some or create a paradigm yeah. shift. Yeah. But my, but my contention, and he elaborated on this, and I, I feel the same way, you can call it hands-off, but I think it's actually more of an engaged hands-on experience because now versus me being this dictator of all movement and yeah. this commander-in-chief that's, that's telling everyone exactly what they did wrong and how they needed to move. Oh, and by the way, I'm coaching a 300 and some odd pound offensive lineman to move exactly like my running back. With, I've done it. And I know you out there have mm, as well. So laugh yep. at yourself for a second. They're supposed to achieve <laughs> the same markers of a sprint technique, but yet they're a completely different position versus being that. Now I'm, an, I'm a coach that's involved in an activity where I have to be sensitive to the unfolding information. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah. You know, so-and-so is being more elusive within these tackles, you know, or, or you know, yeah. semi-set-up tackles. I need to change the size of the space and make it more difficult. I need to condense the size of the space. I need to add a body in there. I need him to do it in a fatigued state. Now you have a coach that is more water-like. You have a coach that is mm. more adaptable. You have a coach that is actually un in the unfolding interactions, immersed and yeah. entangled within it versus being back on the side, barking out orders. Sure. Yeah, I think engage is a really good word because it requires an infinite, infinitely more critical thought while like in the moment, in the session, it may look hands off, you know, we've discussed athlete interactions you could have with, with the coaching process. And, but then, you know, when you're, when you are, you know, trying to design the training, it is a much more engaged, involved process, much more critically involved process. So that's a, that's a great word. I, I really like the, the use of that. So Tyler, we've talked about some of the things you've got going on. We've talked about emergence, emergences on social media. So you can look that up and obviously this will be in the show notes. But emergence just launched a podcast, kind of. We did. It, right? We did. Yeah. So talk about that to get to finish up here. Oh man. I I, I did not know you're gonna mention that. I appreciate it. So <laughs> we've been wanting to do a lot of different things. And at the end of the day, we just want to reach more reach more individuals, reach more coaches and academics and we talked about a podcast. I mean, there's so many great ones out there. You just started a really unique one, you know, engaging with individuals from a number of different disciplines. So thank you for having me on. And then, of course, we have got Rob's in the Perception Action podcast, which is an excellent one. Our friend Stuart Armstrong with the Talent Equation podcast. And there's yep. a number, a number yep. of other ones. I mean, I won't rattle off yep. all of them right now because there are a lot of a lot of good podcasts out there. But I will say, like, we were like, we need something that allows for us to engage with the community even beyond the courses that we put together. And so a good friend of ours who we've been talking to for a long time, he's, he's consumed, as he'll tell you, he's consumed a lot of our information. And he's been involved with the Movement Academy, which is our highly interactive coaching experience, which is university-like, but more specific. And his name is Javi, or Javi Miller Estrada. And he had the Athlete Blueprint podcast, which has been renamed to the Adaptable Athlete podcast. So we have, we have individuals on from, you know, academics to academics that are in this research space to coaches to a lot of different individuals. And so, yeah, we just launched the Adaptable Athlete podcast and with the goal of connecting with more coaches, much like what you're doing. And I, it's really cool because I think sometimes people are like, well, I, I went on someone else's podcast and, you know, I'm, I, I can't do that. I've, I need to champion my own podcast, but it's like working together is going to help more individuals. And yeah, Absolutely. Of we all, we all want to want to get our, our name out there and all do those things. But at the end of the day, we just, we've been wanting to do it for a long time now. Yeah. So we just launched it and just rebranded it, if you will. And yep. so Javi is now a team member at Emergence, along with a number of others, some of which you've mentioned. And we are on social media. Emergence was taken because there were, there was a TV show, I think on NBC, we were launching and those scoundrels had the actual hashtag. So we're actually emergent uh, mo movement, MVMT. Mm -hmm. Definitely check us out on there. And then I, we have two papers out at the moment. One of them is open access in the American football paper that I know you'll link in the show notes. And then one of the other papers that we released, which I'm, I'm very proud of, very excited about. And I had the opportunity to put in, opportunity to put it together alongside 
Boshan Mishka and Keith Davids. And it's a really unique, I think, accessible paper, especially if coaches are maybe a little bit unfamiliar with some of these ideas. And I won't, I won't unpack what our intentions were with the paper, but it's titled Being Water, How Key mm-hmm. Ideas from the Practice of Bruce Lee Align with Contemporary Theorizing in Movement Scale Acquisition. And that one is a closed paper because for those of you who don't publish, it is, it is expensive. <laughs> and so that oh, one's closed. Yeah. But it is on a research gate, so you can find it on there. But check it out. And then I mentioned that we have a paper coming out, and I mentioned the term problem solving quite a bit on here. And the paper is titled Reconceptualizing Movement Behavior in Sport as a Problem Solving Activity. And it's a, it's a deep read. But I think you'll, I think you'll enjoy it and I encourage you. It'll be open access on frontiers probably within the next two to three weeks. And so I encourage those, okay. to, if you're interested in today's conversation, regardless from what walk of life you're from, what discipline you work within, what hat you wear, I encourage you to check that out as well. But Corey, yeah. really appreciate you having me on. Yes. Thank you so much. And I, and, uh, that paper may be open access by the time this episode drops. So. I will also have that linked in the show notes if, if in fact it is, it is out. So awesome. Yes, absolutely. Tyler, thank you so much for your time. And I'm just really glad we could have you on. Thank you so much, man. It's been a blast and great job doing what you're doing. Keep rocking it. Thank you for listening to the performance connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media and on Instagram tag at performance connection podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.